You can go into any bar in America and pick up a conversation with anybody about baseball. Baseball is a common thread. I like it because it's something my dad took me to when I was little. We went to hundreds of games together. My mom wasn't there. My sister wasn't there. Sometimes they'd go with us, but it was basically me and my dad. It's something we can still talk about, even if we don't get along or we're fighting or anything. Even when I call him now, we always talk about baseball on the phone. And he sends me trivia questions in the mail all the time. He's 72 years old. And this is what we talk about. This is the common currency. What it means about America. Boom! Mantle belts it over the fence in right field. Robinson pops it up into infield. And Brooklyn hopes are shattered. And it's a home run for Joe DiMaggio. Hello, everybody. I'm Greg Proops, and this is Strikeout. The complete amazing world history of baseball. Stand by, sports fans. It's time to play ball. The chips are down at Ebbets Field. The Yanks and Dodgers have run out the string. This is it. The crowds roar, children weep, babies cry, banners flap. How about that? But the history of baseball is not as cliched or predictable. Many historians believe that the game's true origins are far from the streets of New York. Here in the darkest recesses of ancient Egyptian tombs is the true home of baseball. If our budget would allow, a Cairo professor and a flashlight would prove that baseball was first played here. Instead, we have Dr. Benny Pizer of John Moores University in Liverpool. He's the editor of the Journal of Sports History. We do have quite a considerable number of archaeological finds which depict ancient kings in Egypt hitting a ball with a stick in front of statues of goddesses. The next stage in the development of these kind of ball games was a kind of folk game. And that's exactly where we have the next evidence for the early forms of baseball. Two men out and nobody out. It's a long drive going high up over the left field pavilion and it's a home run for Joe DiMaggio. That ball was almost over the roof. Go on and tell a Yankees fan that Joe DiMaggio is a descendant of the Pharaohs. At the British Museum, Dr. Irving Finkel will hear none of that. It's a bit, for example, like you look at a wall painting ancient Egypt and there are people sitting about drinking wine out of a wine glass. And you might say to yourself, well, if you go into a pub, people are drinking wine out of a wine glass in England. Obviously, this comes from ancient Egypt. They invented the wine glass, and that's where we get it from today. And of course, it's nothing like that. It's just that human beings react to their requirements, and they develop things in one culture, and you get the same kind of thing in another. And there's no connection between them historically. Whether or not baseball has its origins in ancient Egypt remains to be confirmed. But what is certain is the fact that the game does have striking similarities with other sports throughout the ages. The bat used by early cricketers is identical to those used by baseball players in the last century. Right, everybody, if you want to come with me, we're walking towards Highbury Fields. Peter Powell gives guided tours through the streets of London, charting the British sporting tradition. He and many other experts, and I, believe that cricket, rounders, and baseball all share a common ancient origin. If you can have a great leap of memory and try and sort of think back to your forefathers playing cricket out here about 300 years ago. This was just the kind of area where they would have played. 
with of course a much smaller bat than we know today, a much thinner bat, in shape much more like the baseball bat that we know today. The ball, also smaller, made of a composition. I really don't think you'll get many Egyptologists who will even give you the time of day if you suggest that American baseball is in any way anything whatsoever to do with Egyptology. The only thing you can do is to find a really keen American Egyptological baseball fanatic who loves both things equally and if you give him a lot to drink one afternoon he might, might say, well maybe they are connected after all. But I think in the sober light of day you won't get many people who will agree with it. Whatever the truth of historical rumor, today Americans see baseball as the foundation of our cultural identity. Hey coach! At spring training here in Florida, most of the nation's teams are gathered. The players are preparing for the coming season. Now they and their game represent all that is good and bad about the American dream. Huge sums of money oil the wheels of the sport, while TV images show us the players as stars and give us a sense of national pride. It was the American Civil War that originally caused their distant countrymen to come together. And it was this war that would ultimately spread the sport throughout America. In the beginning of the war, wealthy men could buy substitutes for themselves. And so the majority of the men, one could say, were working men, laborers, artisans, farmers, men such as that. Jeannie Addy is a historian. And one of the things she's documented is the effects the American Civil War had on baseball. Although they organized locally, particularly from rural areas, that means that their local regiments would have contained men they already knew. Once they got into camps and joined into large armies, they would have met men from other states as well as from cities and other regions. The men would get together and they would play sports like baseball. They had different rules and different ways of playing and then they'd learn each other's rules and they'd pick up techniques and ideas, particularly that came from the northeastern cities. As the Civil War raged, General Abner Doubleday fought for the Yankees. 200 miles north of New York is Cooperstown. It was near here that the mustache war hero was rumored to have invented baseball. Four simple pads were placed on the ground in the shape of a diamond. One person holding a ball smaller than an orange would pitch at a player directly ahead. Behind the less-than-athletic target was a catcher. Now, Abner's revolutionary game would see the hitter running from base to base to score a single run. Each time the ball was returned to the pitcher, the runner would stop. If a fielder caught the ball or the ball reached the base before the player, they were out. As with cricket or football, players were split into two teams and rivalry began to grow. America, land of the entrepreneur, home of unashamed commercialism and unrivaled hype, could not let such a story go unmarked. In 1939, a huge money-making museum was created and the Baseball Hall of Fame was born. The sport's greatest players would be honored. The relics of the game's tradition would be displayed for posterity. Well, we're here at the Hall of Fame, and this is the baseball timeline room, and we're standing in front of the double-day ball. This is the purported ball that started it all. John, will you tell us about this? Well, the double-day ball was reportedly first used by Abner Doubleday when he invented baseball about three miles up the road in a place called Fly a Creek. It was found in a collection of artifacts 
of one of Doubleday's friends. And we've had it ever since, and it's probably one of the more popular pieces in the museum. How did it come to be that Abner Doubleday got attributed with inventing the game when there's no evidence that he played baseball, is there? There are a lot of reports, but there are also a lot of reports that he did not. I know folks up in New Jersey would like to believe that Alexander Cartwright invented baseball, and that it's been a long time debate. But the attitude we take around here is that baseball evolved. No one person invented it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I wish my dad was here. Will you describe it for us? All right, it's a small sphere, a lot smaller than our baseball professional ball now. It has three fingers on one piece of leather, and it's sewn together in one central point. That gave it a weak spot, and as you can see, the ball is split open right there. Why was it so important that the origin of baseball be attributed to an American, and not just an American, but a Civil War hero even? Americans did want a sporting pass, and the states want more unity to show that we are united to uh, stand together. And I think that the heroes of the wars and the heroes of the baseball field can help to bring us together more. My home country is the size of Europe. 260 million people from 180 different countries populate our humble land. With only a few things in common, a love of Coca-Cola, an obsession with litigation, and a desperate desire for another thing we can agree on. We needed a unifying activity. From Los Angeles to Michigan and all the way to New York, baseball would be our sport, our pastime, our savior. Attention please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard Miss New York. As we head out toward Ellis Island, passing the Statue of Liberty, you might wonder what this has to do with baseball. But I think it's the experience of coming through here and the need to assimilate and integrate into American society that forced so many immigrants and immigrants' children to take up baseball as the American game and as a way of becoming American. More than anything else, baseball was America. Now here's an interesting picture here. Describe the costume a little bit. Russian Cossacks on Ellis Island. They're wearing fur hats with Russian capes. They're carrying swords and guns. They're wearing riding boots. Many immigrants, they knew there'd be some type of immigration inspection when they arrived here in the United States. So many of them saved their best clothes. They quickly changed on the ship. Once they were arriving here in the harbor, they wanted to make a good impression. Many of them were desperate to become American, to look in an acceptable way, not so foreign, so that their uneasy feelings or uneasiness in being a strange country was much lessened. Jeff Josick and Barry Marino are researchers at the Ellis Island Study Center. They found out the Americans were very excited about sports at that time. Americans are very sports-minded, particularly with baseball. That was the great sport of America. In fact, it's often the children of immigrants, the kids that really got involved in baseball, like Stan Musial. He's the son of a Polish immigrant. He longed to become more American. So Musial started playing baseball and, of course, became an outstanding player. People who love baseball usually aren't that crazy about basketball or football. Baseball is a game that is an acquired taste. Lawrence Ritter is a renowned baseball author and historian who shares my love of the game. You have to acquire it when you're young, when you realize what it means when a runner's on second base and a batter hits a ball in a certain part of the field. Can he make it all the way around third and score or not? And you know what to watch. You know you want to watch the right fielder as he gets ready to throw toward the plate and see whether the runner gets there first or the ball gets there first and whether the catcher can hold on to it and keep holding on to it. All those things you learn as you grow up. 
Lawrence Ritter spent years traveling across America, meeting players, listening to their stories, and keeping alive that bygone era. Now, at the turn of the century, while baseball gripped the American public's imagination, the players themselves were seen as something less than respectable, a little lower than show folk, if you know what I mean. There was a lot of drunkenness on the field, a lot of rowdiness. Frankly, the players were treated as second-class citizens. You were admitted to hotels, that is, first-class hotels. Those were rough and tough days. Everything was different. Those leagues were struggling. They had a hard time getting along. My father was against playing baseball. And I told him, when I grow up, I said, I'm going to be a ball player. And I said, you're going to be proud of me. When you go out and become a ball player, don't come back. As America was dragged into the First World War, the season was cut short and the players were expected to do their patriotic duty. David Cole is curator of the U.S. Army Center of Military History in Washington. They weren't looked on as any different than anyone else, so therefore they were subject to registration and the draft. There was 15,322 baseball bats were brought to France, 7,484 dozen baseballs. Uh, then this goes on to list catcher's mitts, protector masks for the catchers, first base mitts, fielder's gloves, base sets, rules, scorecards, and this is just athletic material that was provided by the YMCA. As the war ended, America had 48 states and two major baseball leagues, the National, the original old guard, and the American, the junior circuit. As the soldiers returned, everyone hoped it would be to a booming America, a land of prosperity, opportunity, and freedom. But for the ball players, nothing had changed. They were grossly underpaid, and they had no power. There was a clause in all of their contracts that said, the first team you sign for, you are attached to that team for the rest of your playing life. The first team you sign with has total control over you. Now that team may, if it wishes, sell your contract to someone else, but otherwise you're tied to them. And if they sell your contract to someone else, now you're tied to that someone else. That was called the reserve clause. Every club reserved the rights to that player for the rest of his career. The athlete was 100% victim. He was victimized by the club owner who abused him and paid him nothing. He was victimized by the system which made him a slave. There were no agents in those days. There were no lawyers representing Walt, but you were just nothing. Elliot Asinoff has written a detailed account of baseball's most infamous scandal. He and Lawrence Ritter tell the tale. Gamblers persuaded eight members of the Chicago team to dump the World Series to Cincinnati in 1919. And baseball plummeted, of course, in popularity. Everybody started thinking the whole game's crooked. The World Series is baseball's annual championship, where the eyes of the country focus on the two best teams, one from the National, the other from the American League. That year, the Chicago White Sox were the heavy-duty favorites. Their star player and big hitter was Shoeless Joe Jackson. Amazingly, the White Sox lost to the Cincinnati Reds. A year later, fans all over the country were shocked to hear that gangsters had offered eight players money to throw the World Series. They were a great ball club. They were winning pennants. They were considered by some to be the best ball club in America, and they were the most badly paid. And the club owner was Charles Comiskey, 
who had been a ball player himself and should have known better, made their lives miserable. He, for example, made them play in dirty uniforms because he didn't pay the expenses of laundering. He would give them less meal money on the road than any other club in baseball. He would promise them bonuses and not come through. He would, uh, he would lie to them. He, would, he treated them like dirt. I mean, they didn't just pluck these guys out of a hat and say, hey, let's fix the World Series, and hey, won't that be something? They were doing it because they were bitter. They were bitter for all the legitimate reasons. We're walking here on the baseball diamond that Shoeless Joe Jackson, baseball legend, played his first games as a young kid working in the mill, which is right across the street here behind first base. It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon here, about 2.45, blue sky. Now, back in the day on a Saturday afternoon like this, a thousand people come around that worked at the mill, all from around Greenville in the area, to watch Joe play. The game would have been starting in about 20 minutes. Joe would come over to the park. He'd slip off his job, sneak out to play ball. Of course, they always knew where Joe was, over here playing ball. And they have to come get him, get him back on to work. Joe Anders was a close friend of Shoeless Joe Jackson. They went to church together. He and his wife never believed that Joe was guilty. They would come to church most Sundays, and they would sit close to the back, in the middle row, sort of at the end of the pew. Katie was a beautiful lady, and she had a lot of pride. She helped him to know how to write, and they seemed to love each other as much as any couple could. Joe's wife was the center of his world. She taught him to write and stood by him throughout the scandal. Now, it's rumored Joe didn't want the money and cared more about the game than personal gain. Joe tried to get that money back, and they closed the door in his face. They wouldn't take the money. These gangsters threatened to kill Joe. Joe believed him, and uh, he didn't want to get involved in that because he loved his wife, Katie. You're his friends. You would believe that he was innocent. Now, why would gamblers kill a major league ball player? They had the reputation I think it happened before, and they had the reputation of doing something like this. We've often wondered, what did he do with the 5000 And he said, I didn't have anything to do with it. He said, I gave it to a hospital. And we have that documented, we have it notarized, and we've sent it to the Hall of Fame. But Elliot Asinoff is adamant that Joe took the money and broke America's heart. It shattered the psyche of the country. Baseball was indeed the centerpiece of so much American attention when it was discovered that a group of ballplayers on the Chicago White Sox had conspired to throw the World Series. I mean, that was such a monumental concept that American people couldn't tolerate it. After it was indeed exposed and the story was acclaimed as something that actually happened, that the games had been fixed, it so sullied the American psyche that everybody began to believe that Everything was fixed. It wasn't just that game that if you could fix those games in the World Series, you could fix anything. And so the suspicions began to arise that elections were fixed and that world wars were fixed and that horse races were fixed and that there was no essential integrity to the country anymore. The popularity of the game had plummeted and fans were staying away in droves. The thing is crooked, they said, after the White Sox demonstrated to have thrown the World Series in 1919. So they didn't want to go to the ballpark to see this farce. But baseball 
with its image of mom and apple pie, now tainted with greed and corruption on all sides, needed to be protected and safeguarded for the future. The owners did the unthinkable and gave up control, handing the reins to the all-powerful Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Baseball management hired a commissioner and gave him total power to do whatever was necessary to keep the game clean. His first action was to strip Joe and his colleagues of their professional status and ban them from baseball for the rest of their lives. Baseball is something more than a game to an American boy. It's his training field for life. Destroy his faith in its squareness and honesty, and you have destroyed something more. You have planted suspicion of all things in his heart. This public humiliation would ultimately rob Shoeless Joe Jackson of his chance for baseball immortality. I judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis hereby declare, regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player that undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player that sits in conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and who does not promptly tell his club will ever play professional baseball. Every week, John Ralph and his colleagues received dozens of letters calling for Joe's forgiveness. But despite the fact that the group were acquitted in a court of law, the doors of the Hall of Fame remain closed. First of all, they would have to petition Major League Baseball to make them eligible again because they were suspended. If they received eligibility again, then they'd probably be voted in the next day. Do you think there's any help? I think so. I think uh, American society tends to forgive. But Joe Jackson, you say Americans love to forgive. It's been a long time, since 1919. Unfortunately for Joe Jackson, he played in an era before media was prominent. Joe Jackson couldn't reach millions of fans on TV, on radio, and drum up support for himself. Joe's last surviving sister refuses to believe that her brother was a crook. He was too good-natured for his own good. Kids just swarmed around him, and he was always buying them ice cream and things like that. I'd like to see it come out and be proven that he did not do what they accused him of, but I don't ever expect it to happen in my lifetime and be in the Hall of Fame. Joe died a guilty man. Whatever the truth may be, during his life, baseball denied him his final true acclaim. Every year, Joe and Kate Anders petitioned baseball's elite to clear his name. We'll keep fighting for Joe to get him to the place where he truly deserves to be. It was just a tragedy. It's just a feeling that I cannot describe. Such an emptiness in your heart. We'll keep fighting for Joe. Here's Umke's pitch to the Babe. There's a drive down the right field line. He did it! He did it! Babe Ruth hits the first home run ever at Yankee Stadium, and the Yankees now lead 4-0 over Boston. Join me, Greg Proops, as we continue our journey through the history of baseball. He was such a dynamic personality that the game forgot very quickly the ignominy of the Black Sox scandal. And people came to the ballpark in thunderous waves, and every time he appeared, the reaction to his presence was such a powerful thing that America forgot and loved the game. 
Strikeout was produced in Birmingham by New Street Productions.